Welcome to Copy Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DVS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist, welcoming to our 88th episode. Pretty auspicious number. Uh, today's guest is Dr. Lin Lu, who will talk about efforts to green a critical part of the global economy, which is international shipping. Uh, an academic by training, Dr. Lu is presently on leave from Princeton University, where she is Theodora D. and William H. Walton III Professor in Engineering. In 2017, she co-founded Andluka Technologies, a startup developing wireless smart window solutions to increasing energy efficiency of buildings and improve occupant comfort. Since 2021, she has been here in Singapore, shaping and leading the Global Center for Maritime Decarbonization, or GCMD. You'll hear that acronym several times in this podcast. GCMD is a nonprofit set up to help Accelerate International Shipping's Transition to a Low and Zero Carbon Future. We've done quite a few podcasts on climate change, but this one is very sectoral, very specific, and I'm really excited about it. Dr. Lin Lu, welcome to Kopi Time. Hi, Tamir. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Tell us about GCMD. Yeah, um, I I prefer to go with the acronym GCMD because um, the full name is is indeed a mouthful. Um, so as you said, GCMD is a nonprofit. Uh, we're about fourteen months old. We were set up um, at the recommendation of this international advisory panel for maritime decarbonization that was convened here in Singapore. Um, that uh, that had basically chief executives of um, sh- shipping companies, uh, battery companies, etc. to think about what we can do here to really um, move uh, the sector forward. And so the IEP met uh, over COVID and recommended the setting up of um, a coordinating body uh, to look at action-oriented things that we can do to accelerate decarbonization for international shipping. Um, This recommendation was put forward um, in April last year and then was accepted. Uh, Six industry partners came forward and said they would um, start. uh, So they are our founding partners, essentially, and they provided uh, $10 million apiece. And then Singapore's Maritime and Port Authority came in and matched that uh, with $60 million. And that formed the first tranche of our funding uh, for GCMD. So GCMD sits right at the private and public interface. Um, and really, our mission is to help um, the international shipping sector eliminate GHG emissions. And we do this uh, by doing three uh, following things. One is to shape uh, standards for future fuels. Uh, the other is to uh, finance first-of-a-kind projects. And then the third would be to pilot low-carbon solutions uh, in uh, real-world operating conditions. And the reason we can do this is because, um, you know, we are a group of engineers and scientists, so we have domain and technical expertise. We can scope projects. Uh, we have the flexible funding that our founders have provided us with and subsequent partners have provided us with. We are an NGO, so we're a neutral convener, so we can bring the stakeholders across the supply chain um, and even beyond the ecosystem together to work on these pilots. And then finally, uh, with MPA as our partner, we have access to regulators. And so we can begin to think about putting sandboxes together so that we can actually do these meaningful pilots. So that's in a nutshell who GCMD is. Oh, this is so exciting. Um, The ability to have that kind of flexibility and be in a coordinating role. Um, And that sounds like a role of a lifetime, Lynn. Um, But let me step back for a second and ask the most obvious question, which is why do we need to solve for maritime decarbonization and how large are the stakes? Ah, that's a really good question. I mean, um, so 14 months ago, I knew nothing about shipping, right? And so to me, shipping uh, was... um, sort of, you know, out of, out of sight, out of mind. And I'm sure that's the case for lots of people. We think about shipping when we think about, oh, our, perhaps we think about shipping when we think about our Amazon boxes coming exactly. to our doorstep. Um, but shipping is really integral to the global supply chain. So Tamara, do you know that shipping is responsible for 90% of the global trade? So it touches 90% of the global trade, right? Um, And it's responsible for 3% 
of global carbon emissions. Um, and just to put things in perspective, 3% may not sound like a lot, but 3% makes it um, a the sixth largest emitter, if you will, mm. uh, from a country perspective. Um, shipping is regulated by a single entity called the International Maritime Organization, or the IMO. Um, and so shipping's emissions is actually counted um, separate from individual countries' uh, carbon inventory, mm. right? So it has its own carbon emissions. That's why I can tell you it's 3%. And that 3% is comparable to that of aviation. So why is this such big stakes? Well, uh, because it's such an integral part of the global supply chain, essentially our scope one emissions is always going to be somebody else's scope three emissions. So the cargo owners, the consumers, they can't decarbonize if we don't decarbonize. So that's how linked we are in, in, in terms of the global supply chain, right? So it's really important for us to think about decarbonizing shipping so that the the whole world can decarbonize. Yeah. Um, so speaking of international maritime organizations, so I understand you know there are these certain targets that they have set. So tell us a bit about those targets and your overall thoughts. We're going to go into specifics later. Your broad-based thoughts on how do we go about addressing these targets? Yeah. So um, so IMO has set targets uh, for decarbonizing international shipping, and the target is to reduce carbon intensity by 40% by 2030 relative to 2008 levels, and then to reduce total GHG emissions by 50% by 2050. Now, you'll notice that these targets aren't exactly Paris aligned because mm-hmm. Paris um, targets call for net zero by 2050. Nonetheless, these are very ambitious targets for shipping because um, in order for us to get to these kinds of targets, um, basically we're looking at low carbon and zero carbon fuels that um, are currently not available today. Okay, um, so that's that's just the target side of things. So how, how am I looking at this? Well, I think, um, you know, um, shipping went from using wind as propulsion to coal, to generate steam, to oil. And now we're looking at sort of the fourth incarnation of what we should be using as fuels, right? Um, Just the industrial revolution alone, if you look at sort of um, what um, really helped um, uh, economies develop, that uh, industrial revolution took place and that energy system that was built took more than a century. Um, And now we're talking about a completely different energy infrastructure. And we'd like to build this in 30 years. Um, that's a really, really tall task. It's a challenging task. Um, it, it's uh, saying this is not meant to cripple one, um, but it's it's just to put things into perspective, right? In terms of how long it took for us to kind of embrace oil and gas. And now we're saying, okay, forget about oil and gas. Let's think about renewables. And by the way, let's do this in 30 years. Um, So in order to think about this energy transition, I think we need to chunk it up into pieces. Mm -hmm. We need to think about near-term solutions. We need to think about medium-term solutions. And then we need to think about long-term solutions. It's easy to just kind of look at the long-term solutions because there's no question where we'd like to end up. But it's not obvious how to get there, right? Like I said, uh, for shipping, the long-term solution is really the zero-carbon fuels, the green ammonias, green methanol, et cetera, that's needed um, for us to to be able to sail without emitting uh, GHG. Um, so, so I think what we need to do is to keep an eye on the ball on the long-term solution and work hard on that. But in the meantime, do what we can with what we have now to start bending the curve. And so what it means is we need to simultaneously work on near-term solutions. So that include, uh, it includes technologies that can reduce fuel consumption, like, you know, wind sails, like hull cleaning robots, like air lubrication, uh, but also look at um, low carbon fuels that are available today. So biofuels, perhaps even liquefied natural gas. Now they aren't without their set of issues, but I think done right and used properly, they can reduce our carbon footprint in the meantime. And then the, in the medium term, I think we need to think about things like shipboard carbon capture. Um, carbon capture uh, uh, provides the runway for green fuels to scale, for green fuel costs to come down. And so we need to think about midterm solutions as well. So basically to chunk up the energy transition and think about solution in three buckets. Um, most importantly, I think, um, you know, we can't do this alone, right? Um, um, just talking about fuels, right? I, I think if you think about shipping, fuels is really outside the sector. So we need to think about 
um, sectorial uh, collaboration and partnership, but we also, more importantly, need to think about cross-sector collaboration mm-hmm. and partnerships as well in order to really uh, uh, get moving and move the needle. And and I think finally, we need uh, the carrot and the stick. So having a price on carbon certainly will help. Um, and, and also having regulations and having these targets so that we know where we're headed and that, you know, these policies are enforced. So all those things need to come into play if we're going to get to those targets uh, that that we just talked about. Right. Okay. We are going to unpack some of these because some of the stuff you said, we can't just, you know, just use the word. You have to explain to us in greater detail. So um, first technologies, then solutions. And then I want to talk about carbon capture, right? So starting with current and frontier technologies, you sort of touched upon them and I'm really tantalized Mm -hmm. by them. So walk us through (laughs) a little greater detail about some of the technologies that you think are promising now. And then the frontier stuff that, you know, almost sounds like science fiction, but we'd like it to happen. Well, let's not call it science fiction. <laughs> it will happen. It's a matter of time. It will happen. So we don't want to call that science All fiction, right? right? Um, so we can talk about the near-term solutions first. I mean, near-term solutions are things that are currently available today uh, that when installed, um, you can shave emissions by, I don't know, anywhere from 1% to 10%. Okay, it doesn't get you all the way there, but you can start shaving emissions. So those are things like wind sails uh, that you can put on board. Um, in fact, just a couple of days ago, um, I saw. So my office is at Pasir Panjang, so I look, I, I overlook the Pasir Panjang uh, terminal port, um, and I saw one of our partnerships. So this is an Ocean Network Express container ship uh, that had this white thing at its bow, so at the front of the ship, and I couldn't quite figure out what it was. So I asked our friends at ONE and. They basically said, oh, it's a wind deflector. And so I looked it up and it turns out that this wind deflector is essentially like a visor on trucks or even on motorcycles. And it basically reduces drag. And by reducing drag as it sails, you can reduce fuel consumption and it reduces fuel consumption by about 2%, right? So these are the kinds of things one can do in the interim. This was a large container ship. With Correct. a very large Correct. white cloth in front of Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so these are the kinds of things one can do, right? Um, there are operational measures one can also do. So, for example, this idea of just in time. So, basically, you can sail more slowly. And when you sail more slowly, you use less fuel so that you get to the port just in time, as opposed to going fast and then getting to the port and then having to wait at the port for a birth space or whatnot, right? So these are the kinds of things one can do. Again, it shaves um, fuel consumption. And so it it nets out carbon emissions by between one to 10%, depending on what we're talking about. In terms of fuel, uh, current fuels, low carbon fuels that are available are things like biofuels. Uh, now biofuels are not at scale, so we understand that. But you know, if you can deploy some of it, you can reduce your carbon footprint. So the concept of drop-in um, is important. So that's the idea of taking some biofuels and dropping it into marine fuel so that you can reduce your carbon footprint some. Now, of course, it's important to know where your Biofuel comes from because its origination um, would um, affect its carbon footprint reduction, right? And then it's important to know how much you have in there so that you can properly calculate your GHG emissions abatement. Um, You can use uh, liquefied natural gas, um, provided that there's no methane slip upstream, Mm -hmm. provided you're not leaking methane, because methane is an even more potent greenhouse gas, um, you can reduce carbon emissions by about 20%. So these are things that we need to think about. I don't think we we should a priori cross anything out at this moment, because we need to do whatever we can with whatever we have now to uh, really bend the curve on carbon emissions. So these are the kinds of things we can do sort of now. So Lynn, just okay. a second on the biofuel one, is that concept or is it actually happening in the world of shipping? Uh, it's actually happening. So, I mean, there are there have been lots of trials uh, that have been done and you can commercially purchase biofuels. Um, there is a green fuel premium associated with using mm-hmm. uh, biofuels. And so then you need to justify this green fuel premium or you need your customers to be able to pay for the green fuel premium. So in fact, what we've done um, earlier in the years, we've uh, spoken to our stakeholders. This is typical of how we scope our pilots. Uh, So we spoke to about 200 stakeholders across the supply chain and we asked them, why aren't you using biofuels? Biofuels are available today. Why aren't you using more biofuels? And repeatedly the pain point 
that uh, has come up is, well, the supply chain is actually quite opaque. So we don't quite know what we're getting. Mm. We don't know what we're paying for. So what we've done is we've basically scoped a pilot with 13 vessels bunkering, meaning refueling, at three different ports on three different continents, so Singapore, Rotterdam, and Houston, with different kinds of biofuels, with the goal of bolstering the supply chain integrity. So we're going to use a tracer technology. We're going to go all the way upstream to the biofuel producer, and we're going to put that into the biofuel. Uh, It's a tag and flag, so you know where it originates from, so you know its carbon footprint at the beginning. And then you follow it down the supply chain. And so then you can have assurance on the quality, on the quantity, on the abatement potential, and that should give confidence to the purchaser to justify the green fuel premium that one one is purchasing, right? So so that's sort of the idea to bolster the integrity of the supply chain. And we're doing this for biofuels for now because biofuels are is available today. But looking forward, when green fuels become available, they're not going to be available at scale immediately. So again, this drop-in concept of mixing green with gray is going to be important. And again, there you want to know how much of the green is there, the quality of the green, the carbon footprint of the green fuel. Um, so that you can justify the green fuel premium. So we think this framework is going to be uh, extensible to future green fuels as well. Well, that's really interesting. So now on the LNG part, you talked about Mm -hmm. the risk of methane leakage and Mm -hmm. so on. So walk us through a little bit about the potential actual practice and what kind of solutions do you have in mind to deal with the leakage issue? Well, I mean, I think um, so the leakage, um, of course, the engine um, leakage is something within the sector. And that's something that engine manufacturers are working hard to address. And in fact, I think um, done right, um, um, the engines actually have very, very little slip or leaks. And so the, the, the large portion of the leaks actually happen upstream, right at the wellheads, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there, I think you need constant monitoring technologies to know that you're not leaking methane. Um, and, and I know there are satellite companies, et cetera, that are looking at this. Um, again, this is, um, out of, this is out of our sector sectorial scope. So um, we haven't kept track too much except to say that it's important um, for upstream to manage the leak and manage the slip along the way. <clears throat> Very interesting. Okay. So I'm not going to use the word science fiction anymore. <laughs> Frontier right. technology. So these are the intermediate solutions. Uh, where do you see the most sort of you know, exciting, the biggest potential on the frontier side is? Yeah. So, I mean, so these would be the zero carbon fuels, right? And and so these would be, um, they're also called E-fuels because E stands for, you know, from electrons. And so the, the implications, you have enough renewable electrons to generate green hydrogen and then use that green hydrogen as a feedstock to produce either ammonia. So that's called the green ammonia or um, e-methanol. E-methanol has one added step of complexity in its production in that methanol still has a carbon. So in order for e-methanol to be zero carbon, you need either a biogenic source of captured carbon, or you need direct air captured carbon to make that methanol in order for the methanol to be zero carbon. Okay. Um, Or it could be any kind of synthetic fuel, like a synthetic diesel, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea is it originates from renewable electrons. So those are the fuels of the future. And those are the fuels that would, um, in the long run, allow shipping to completely decarbonize. But these fuels aren't available. Like, I mean, take ammonia for, for, for a second. Um, there's very little green ammonia to be to be spoken of today, right? Um, and so, so we need time for the infrastructure to scale. We need time to build up that supply chain. We need time for the production to scale up so that these fuels are available um, to the shipping community. But I mean, there are lots of end uses for ammonia. I mean, like fertilizer too, right? And so, um, yeah. So, um, so, so I think. Um, Time, we need time. And so that's why in the interim, one needs to think about the near-term solution as well as the midterm solution, which is carbon capture, uh, which I understand we'll come back and talk about in a little bit. I wanted to go right there. Yes. Um, I, I want to I've heard you in other forum talk about carbon capture, and I've heard 
some challenges to the notion of carbon capture as well. So I went up and read a little bit. So there are certain climate activists who argue that, you know, carbon capture is expensive, it's energy intensive, it's risky to store and risky to dispose. Um, walk us through the uh, potential as well as the risks around carbon capture. I, I mean, the, the short answer is what you've said is all true. But then again, what technology doesn't have a drawback, right? I mean, even the fossil fuel that we use today has a major drawback, and that's uh, it, that's that's its use basically has caused irreparable damage to our environment, and yet we use it, right? I mean, so I think we need to go in with our eyes wide open, understand the pros and cons, and then try to accentuate the pros and then eliminate or mitigate the cons, right? And so so I think that's how I think about all technologies and, and uh, carbon capture and sequestration in, in particular. So the idea of carbon capture is um, you're going to take um, CO2 emissions out. Um, and so there's point source carbon capture, and that's basically carbon capture of flue gases. Um, um, and so um, there, the CO2 is con- is more concentrated because it comes from flue gas, whether it's, you know, a power plant um, or, you know, a cement plant or a steel plant. So this is on land. Let's talk about on land first. Um, and um, while the technology um, overall is still sort of in the demonstration stage, these point source carbon capture technologies would be the most mature amongst them. And I think, you know, I mean, depending on which report you read, it's about $100 a ton for you to break even, okay, for such technology. So yes, it's expensive. Um, The other technology that's sort of uh, not as far along is something called direct air capture. And that's, uh, you'd have to capture carbon and and basically separate carbon dioxide out from atmosphere. And because it's less concentrated, it's just going to be more energy intensive and it's just going to cost more. And there, the cost is between, I I mean, I've heard numbers between $250 a ton to upwards $1,000 a ton. Okay. Um, um, For shipping, we're thinking about carbon capture on ships because, you know, as you burn fuels, you're generating carbon dioxide and it comes out of the funnel. If there's an opportunity to capture that carbon dioxide, um, then you're releasing less into the atmosphere. Um, uh, We understand that there's no economies of scale. I mean, essentially, we're putting a small chemical factory on individual ships, right? Nonetheless, as long as we're thinking about sectorial emissions and we want to uh, reduce sectorial emissions, this is something I think shipping needs to think about. Um, so um, um, what are what what is involved in the process? Well, it involves capturing carbon dioxide first. And then once you've captured that CO2, you need to store it on board ships. So you need to liquefy it and then store it on board ships. And then you need to get rid of it. Um, And so there is a reverse bunkering process or an offloading process that one needs to think about. And then one needs to think about off-takers. What do you do with that carbon dioxide once you've captured it and you've offloaded it? The last thing you want to do is to release it back into the atmosphere. And so um, we think this is sufficiently interesting and important to the sector that we've actually, two weeks ago, just launched another pilot um, looking at shipboard carbon capture. And here, this is going to be the largest carbon capture uh, uh, pilot to date. It's at scale because we want to do everything to the extent possible um, under real world conditions, under commercial and operational conditions. Um, so we've identified Stena Bulk's um, medium range tanker, and we've identified the medium range tanker because um, similar sized vessels contribute about 17% of shipping's emissions. So it's a big sector that we can influence if we can demonstrate this technology to be done correctly. And so the idea is to capture carbon dioxide at a 30% capture rate on this medium range tanker um, over 500 hours of operations, and then to liquefy it on board. So there's a lot of energy demand associated with liquefying it. And so the part of the pilot is to address the energy demand side of things. Um, And so we're looking at waste heat, um, we're looking at detuning the engine, perhaps to generate a little more waste heat so that net net, you know, while the engine is suboptimal, maybe net net, 
when you consider the energy system on the vessel itself, that it would be more productive use of waste heat to use the waste heat to run the scrubber for carbon capture. And then, um, and then we need to demonstrate offloading that carbon dioxide. Um, and then, and then we've identified an off taker to take that carbon dioxide. So it's an end to end pilot, um, from capture to, um, to, in this case, it's a utilization as opposed to storage. Um, but I don't want to poo poo the challenges beyond beyond um, capture and storage. Um, I think the the challenges that you had referred to um, when you hear about the activist talk, it's about storage and disposal, right? And so sequestration is really important. And um, as long as carbon capture is going to be part of the portfolio of solutions, one really needs to think about transboundary handling of CO2. Mm -hmm. Because where you collect, even on land, where you collect is not necessarily going to be where you store simply because the reservoirs aren't there. Yeah. Um, so one needs to think about transboundary issues. And currently, transboundary issues are very challenging um, because who wants to take your waste? Nobody right. really wants to take your waste. Right. There are risks and liability and loss and damages that are associated with um, with taking somebody else's CO2, right? So an international framework needs to be in place to be able to um, help move this along. Um, but I take... Um, I take inspiration and I'm um, encouraged by um, a couple of commercial contracts uh, that have been announced. So there is a commercial contract between uh, Norway and the Netherlands where it's going to be captured in one country and it's sequestered in another country. And this commercial contract is backed by the relevant ministries of both countries. There's another commercial contract between Denmark and Belgium. So, I mean, I think we need to look at these kinds of examples and learn from these kinds of examples and see how we can extend this on a global basis so that you can actually capture it in one region and then store in another region, right? Very interesting. Lynn, can you help me sort of visualize the process? So there's a tanker, like the way you made me help me visualize the the, the drag sail in, in the, the tanker that you saw in Pasir Panjang. So there are these big funnels and a big maritime vessel, and there will be little filters in front of the nozzle of the funnel. Ah, um, no, no, no. So, so there will be funnels, and then um, basically the the emissions are then um channeled into um um uh, another scrubber and this is essentially a small chemical factory it has a mean solution so it's a basic solution and when the basic solution meets carbon dioxide which is acidic in nature it's going to absorb the carbon dioxide into the amine solution and so then now you have a solution, uh, an amine solution that has the carbon dioxide in it. It then has to go somewhere else Correct. where it gets yeah. separated. And this separation is very energy intensive. And when once it's separated, the amine solution is recycled and it can capture more carbon dioxide. The captured carbon dioxide is isolated and then it can be either liquefied into CO2 tanks or there are... Um, technologies that are being explored to actually um, solidify it into calcium carbonate, for example, then it's easier to transport. Um, so, so basically, it's a recycle loop of solution that absorbs on the one end and then desorbs the CO2 on the other side, if you, if you will. Sure. And, and tankers are large. So I'm assuming space is not going to be a huge issue, even if we were to set up these little chemical factories on top of this. Um, well, to the contrary, uh, space is always going to be an issue. Um, so in fact, I um, so this MR tanker that we've identified is the Stana Imperial, what happened to be bunkering um, in the waters of Singapore. So we had a chance. And so we boarded it to look at where we would put the CO2 tank because we, um, you know, we're in the engineering design phase right now. But preliminarily, I think we've identified that we need two uh, 300 cubic meter CO2 tanks to hold the CO2 okay. because for every ton of fuel you burn, you generate three tons of CO2. Um, so you, there's a lot of CO2 that needs to be stored on board. And so we were looking for space to store this and we've identified sort of space to be able to store this. And, and part of, um, I mean, the tanker, so... So the different ships have different space constraints, right? I mean, so tankers still have deck space where you can put right. tanks. Um, but a container ship, for example, does not have deck space. And so one would have to think hard about where you would put the tank, right? Um, so I think different segments are going to have different challenges and therefore different 
solutions. So shipping is very interesting in that way because it's very heterogeneous. And so the solutions by nature is going to be very heterogeneous as well. You know, I'm just hoping and praying that among the various listeners of this podcast, there are some budding engineers out there who will be sort of riveted and inspired by all the unsolved problems in this industry and would want to put their minds to it because this is getting me very excited uh, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, for sure. I'm, I'm excited too. You know, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I will anyway. I feel like I'm, I'm, um, I'm using more of what I learned as a chemical engineer now than I have when I uh, when I when I was teaching. Um, because when I was teaching and doing research, I was very focused on, um, and and my team is still currently working at Princeton, right? We we develop solar cells, and so we're very focused on specific fundamental questions that we're trying to answer, and so. Um, um, it's it's not these uh, engineering principles per se, right? And so so it's sort of the kinds of things I learned as an undergrad that I'm applying um, to to the kinds of problems that I'm seeing today um, in shipping. Okay, so since you mentioned solar cells and and your own research, I have to go on a tangent and ask you why don't we see solar cells on top of ships? Ah, uh, well, I mean, I think you can, and in fact. Um, there was a, a demonstration ship uh, called uh, the Energy Observer um, that was here, um, that docked here. And it's basically a, a catamaran um, that is zero carbon, right? So it's got solar panels, it's got wind sails, it's got um, basically an electrolyzer that produces hydrogen for at night when the wind doesn't blow and the, the solar panel can't generate electricity. Oh, wow. Um, it's a catamaran, but you know, it's, it's, it's for experiments, um, and for demonstration that you can actually sail, uh, without, without, um, without, without, um, fossil fuels. Uh, that said, I mean, that's a small catamaran, right? And so for these deep sea, deep sea going ships, it's, it's just very challenging. You may be able to put solar panels um, to provide some auxiliary power. The question is always going to be the trade-off, right? Yeah. What space and surface area are you sacrificing and how much power are you generating? And so when you do that equation, I think um, frequently you'll find that it, 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 it doesn't quite make sense. Mm. Uh, for shipping to uh, for these big ships to think about solar panels. Um, I want to switch the discussion a bit toward the uh, taxes and levies around carbon. So what are your thoughts on carbon taxes, especially in Singapore? It's a big issue. You know, the recent budgets have talked about progressively raising carbon taxes in this country. We're discussing issues related to border adjustment tax coming out of European Union. Um, so in the context of maritime and in general, where do you stand on carbon taxes? Yeah. So, um, at, at the, uh, so I should say at the outset that, you know, at GCMD, we're not a policy think tank, right? right? And so we, we try, I mean, um, so we are technologists. So we, we try to look at solutions. That said, I mean, I think it's really, 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 and I'll add two more reallys, really, really important to have a price on carbon. Um, and 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 I think the specific market-based measures with which we apply a price on carbon um, were um, sort of we have less of an opinion about, if you will. I think it, it, what we have an opinion about is that it needs to be fair. Okay, and I think um, shipping has a tremendous opportunity in this regard. Um, so I joined shipping because. You know, shipping is a global industry, and so it's regulated by a single body, which means that if we can agree on a single market-based measure, or if we can agree on a set of market-based measures, it can be applied throughout globally. So then this doesn't create any um, uh, any distortion to the market. It doesn't create any unlevel playing field, right? As opposed to electrification and the power sector where I came from when I was looking at um, energy systems, there it's very fragmented. Um, forget about talking across state boundaries. I mean, even regionally, you have different um, different commissioners that are working and different regulators. And so there to pass a carbon policy becomes a little more challenging, right? Here, I think there's a tremendous opportunity because shipping is a global industry. So we should definitely think about um, um, a market-based measure. And there's 
tremendous uh, conversations that are happening at the IMO now. And just yesterday, um, in one of our trade journals, uh, um, you wouldn't know this because you probably don't read our trade journal, um, <laughs> the International uh, uh, Chamber of Shipping had announced that it submitted uh, a proposal to, to the IMO um, called the Fund and Reward Scheme. And so the idea is that you know um, ship owners are going to contribute um, uh, a flat amount based on the carbon emissions, their annual carbon emissions. And this amount then gets pulled together. And uh, this amount can be used uh, to incentivize first movers by paying for the uh, paying for the green fuel premium. Right. Right. And so so I think these kinds of things, I think, can work. Um, we just need to make sure that it works across the sector i.e. globally for shipping, as opposed to sort of regionally, because I think regional patchwork type policy can really hurt the industry because it can create unlevel playing field. Absolutely. Um, Lynn, uh, earlier, several times you mentioned certain uh, pilots that GCMD is doing, you know, initiatives and partnerships. Um, so I think we talked a little bit about the ammonia bunkering study, um, and you also talked about the sale of wind-assisted propulsion. Anything else that, you know, that is taking up a lot of your time these days in terms of uh, initiatives and partnerships? Yeah, so, I mean, so we talked about uh, the biofuels, right, uh, the framework for, for supply chain integrity. We talked a little bit about the shipboard carbon capture. Maybe I'll take this opportunity to tell you about the ammonia bunkering study sure. um, that we've done. Um, I'll start by, I mean, that was our first that was our first study. And so we actually commissioned that study two months into um, our founding. That was how important the study was. And we knew we needed to do this. And again, I mean, this is with an eye on future fuel, right? So ammonia is a future fuel. Um, ammonia is super toxic, right? It kills. Um, and so if we were going to use it as a marine fuel, we need to have a good handle on how to manage and, and handle it safely. Um, so if you look across the value chain for ammonia, certainly there are people who are trying to produce ammonia at scale and at cost. Um, and within the sector, you know, the first engine will be built 2024, 2025 timeframe, and then the first ship will be available. And so we asked ourselves, well, where's the gap? How can we plug in the gap? And what can we do to kind of accelerate the eventual adoption of ammonia? And we identified safety as being one of them. How do you safely bunker ammonia, bunker as in refueling ammonia. Mm -hmm. So the idea of moving molecules around safely. Um, and so we, we said we were going to do an ammonia bunkering pilot. Um, and then we quickly realized, oh, we can't actually do an ammonia bunkering pilot because there are no safety guidelines. And if there are no safety guidelines, we can't generate a regulatory sandbox to do the ammonia bunkering pilot. So we took a step back and we said, okay, we'll do, we'll commission a safety study. And so that's what the safety study is about. It's to identify the, you know, um, the, and define the envelopes, the safety envelopes, the operational envelopes, um, so that we can do a bunkering pilot. Um, buried in there is also a competency framework development because um, it's not enough to just come up with the safety guidelines. Um, you need to train the seafarers so that they can handle uh, ammonia safely. And so the competency framework is buried in there as well. Um, so I'm happy to report the study is on track. So it'll be done by the end of the year. And then we would be ready to share beginning of next year. And so we're in the process of scoping what that pilot would look like and how we can use these guidelines um, with the help of the regulatory authorities, of course. And they would have to eventually approve and ultimately approve uh, um, uh, the guidelines and then approve a sandbox for us to do this pilot. Um, so, so again, it's, it's, it's demonstrating how we can safely move the molecules around because um, it's with that that I think bunkering can happen, right? Um, so, Great stuff. Well, good luck with that. We'll, we'll look forward to the uh, announcements toward the end of this year, early next year. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, you mentioned earlier about Scandinavian countries being fairly progressive in some of the frontier issues related to carbon capture and sequestration. Um, beyond that, I mean, which countries are the, the leading beacons right now in maritime decarbonization? 
Um, well, I mean, I think uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Singapore, right? I think, look, I mean, we were set up in record time um, mm-hmm. from the time that we were, you know, that the recommendation was put forth to the Singapore government to the time we were set up was a matter of four months, right? I mean, it's incredible how supportive the ecosystem here is and how um, how focused we are on the decarbonization agenda. And, and I mean, I think... Um, this is to be expected because Singapore is such an important maritime hub. So um, I'll give you a couple of stats. I bet you, you didn't know this. So Singapore as a bunkering hub bunkered more than 50 million tons of fuel last year. And global bunkering is about 250 million tons. So 25%. So it's bunk- yeah, it's yeah. bunkering volume in Singapore is greater than the bunkering volumes of the next nine largest bunkering hubs combined. That's how much Singapore bunkers. And um, ships today, um, irrespective of where they go, they generally bunker at more than 50% of the ships bunker only at one port. So Singapore sees lots of ships, meaning that if Singapore can figure out how to decarbonize shipping here, it's gonna have a huge impact on the maritime sector, right? And that's why Singapore is looking at um, a multi-fuel future. It needs to be ready uh, with different kinds of fuels because we've just said that, you know, with different ships and different segments of ship, different size of ships, they're gonna need different kinds of fuels. They have different solutions. So so, so I think it's important um, to, to sort of look ahead that way. So, so I think, I mean, Singapore is very, very progressive in that sense. And of course, the MPA had just launched the maritime blueprint. Um, and so it talks about different measures of how it's going to decarbonize um, both on the port side, on the infrastructure side, and, and then of course, on the ship side of things. Um, so we mentioned Norway, um, you know, it's got green coastal shipping programs. It's got lots of pilots going. Um, they are a very good partner of ours um, in terms of, you know, looking at shipping uh, and decarbonizing shipping. Um, uh, the MPA here had just signed a green corridor agreement with the Port of Rotterdam. So Netherlands is another place to look to. Uh, Port of Rotterdam is another big and important port. And so this Green Corridors idea is, again, to, to harmonize standards at both ports, to uh, be able to incentivize and, and kind of accelerate um, decarbonization between for, for ships that sail between these two ports, right? And then finally, I would say Japan. I think Japan, you know, has done a lot of trials to look at different, bringing in different hydrogen carriers, um, both for their power sector and for their shipping sector. Um, and so they are very progressive in that sense as well. And um, there are, in my opinion, there are lots of learnings to be had um, with, and sharing to be had with Singapore because like, uh, with Japan, sorry, because like Singapore, Japan has very little natural resources, right? Um, so if we, as we move to a renewable energy um, economy, like we need to import our energy. And so how do we think about this? So there are lots of, I think, exchanges that can be had. You did not mention the U.S. or China. Um, well, I mean, um, the U.S. Um, is not a big player in shipping. Um, um, and so I think from a from a sectorial perspective, I didn't mention U.S. because okay. it's not a big player in shipping. Um, and and um, uh, China certainly it has uh, is building its fair share of ships, and so I think in that sense I think um, working with the shipyards is very important because they are the ones that are going to be responsible for putting on retrofit uh, uh, technologies. Uh, hardware on on the ships they're going to be the ones that are going to install new engines on the ships right and so i think in that sense they're important too sure and it, because you know at the very beginning of the podcast you said that you know 90 percent of global trade is uh on, on 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 the waters and i think of china you know the largest exporter in the world but i suppose it also depends on you know who actually owns that shipping line and where the sort of the responsibility and the regulatory uh sort of the window goes in. Um, so, so yeah, I, I suppose, you know, countries like Singapore, you know, which are big entrepreneurs, you know, it makes sense for them to take the lead in to so to speak. Um, Lynn, in a recent interview, uh, you were talking about TCMD and you said something to the extent that, you know, you've got a role to play, but not just in providing funds, but also in providing value adds. So I'm curious about this, this role of TCMD as a neutral convener of sorts. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, um, yes. So I'll, I'll come back to the ammonia bunkering study um, to illustrate this. So with the ammonia bunkering study, um, typically when one does a study like this, it takes a couple of years to get a safety study done um, because one typically does it serially, meaning that one does a study, then consults with industry to kind of refine the study. When the study is done, you submit it to the regulatory authorities who then kind of say, well, you're deficient in this, 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 and this, go back and do more. And that iterative process takes a couple of years. We didn't want to wait a couple of years because we don't have time to wait. And uh, frankly, I'm impatient. Um, so what we did was we were pretty heavy handed about this study. We assembled at the get-go 22 industry partners across the supply chain. And we, when we um, selected um, after technical evaluation, uh, DNV, Serbana Jurong and Singapore Maritime Academy to do the study, we told the trio that they needed to work with these 22 partners, that these 22 partners have experience dealing with ammonia, they have knowledge, they need to work with them. And then alongside, we worked with MPA and had MPA help us set up a regulatory working group um, and so these discussions are happening in parallel and the consultations are happening in parallel. So everybody is kept abreast of the progress. Okay. So that if there's anything deficient that we need to address, or there's any concerns from a regulatory standpoint, we address it at the get go. And so by doing so, we've been able to kind of shorten the study down to about eight months. Mm. Um, and we're hopeful. I mean, at the end of the day, it still needs to be approved, but we're hopeful that it would be approved relatively quickly um, for that reason, right? And so this is sort of how we can value add. As a neutral convener, we can bring people um, both from the private sector and then the public sector together. Um, we can convene. Um, we can bring nominally competitors together to work together. Um, in another example, so um, so in, in, in the biofuels trial, I mean, we brought 13 vessel owners and charters together to work together on this pilot, right? Um, so, so again, I think uh, where we value add is where there's tremendous complexity. When it's simply to pilot a single solution by putting it on board ship and it's sort of a one player, one solution, one solution provider, one player type thing, I think there are lots of other players that can add value that way. But we can add value where there's tremendous complexity and where there's a lot of stakeholders um, because we can bring people together and we can provide the transparency where the transparency is needed uh, to move things forward. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think, uh, and it's an important role for you to play uh, in addition to just, you know, funding pilots, uh, but uh, to help sort of, you know, resolve some of those complexities and naughty issues around that. But Lynn, the other big constraint is funding, uh, you know, green financing. So as you know, we at DBS are, you know, very big champions of uh, green financing and green loans. Um, but I, I don't think, you know, the financial system has solved this issue yet. So tell me a little bit about your experience in sourcing green financing from both the bank and non-bank sectors. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, just to put things in perspective, to decarbonize shipping, uh, the number that's been thrown around is you need $3 trillion. And 80% of the $3 trillion is going to be spent on land infrastructure, right? So, so think about it. To decarbonize shipping, you need to spend money on land infrastructure, right? Um, there in itself is already a hard problem because right. The money actually flows out of the sector. Um, and then, of course, this land infrastructure, well, what are they? They would be storage terminals for new fuels. They would be, you know, bunker facilities for new fuel, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so these are first-of-a-kind projects. And I'm sure you've heard plenty because I've certainly heard plenty. These are not bankable. These are not bankable. So there's plenty of climate action money out there, but they're really for things like solar projects, wind projects, but these first-of-a-kind projects, it's really hard because they are not bankable. So um, we're thinking hard about how, you know, um, we can distribute risk with organizations that can best tolerate these different kinds of risks, right? And I think, you know, GCMD has a special role to play here because we can help 
de-risk technology. We can help lower the risk on the operation side of things. We can even open dialogue with regulators. So to lower regulatory or policy risks too. Um, and then is there an opportunity to crowd in monies from different sources with different tolerance of risk to be able to start moving on these kinds of projects, right? And GCMD is fortunate in that we have a small war chest that we can also put money in. But let's face it, compared to these numbers that we're talking about, GCMD's money is chump change, right? That's and right. So, so we need to see how we can crowd in this money. And, and what it means, again, to do things in the 30 years that we want to do things in, it's really we can't afford to wait to do things sequentially. We need to be able to invest in a fuel production facility before there are off-takers. We need to invest in zero carbon emissions ship before fuel production is at scale. I mean, these things just need to happen in parallel. And so um, folks like you need to help us think about how to do this. I mean, I know nothing about finance. I just know that we need to kind of mobilize the monies so that um, we can crowd in the resources to be able to get going quickly. Yeah, um, like I said, I, I don't think finance has solved this yet. It's another of those, you know, big issues. And in terms of you know, risk underwriting or public-private partnership, uh, and the cost of capital associated with these things, as well as the risk mitigation, it's it's a big area. Um, we will have to revisit this in a couple of years' time, and to see, you know, whether my part of the industry is being a good partner to your part of the industry in, in pushing this forward. Um, Lynn, you used the phrase multi-fuel future earlier. Um, I think uh, having talked about a bunch of, you know, sort of narrowly defined uh, points earlier, maybe as a final question for this podcast, you just lay out for me, let's say the 2030 vision that you have for a multi-fuel future. Uh 2030 is hard, man. Um, because I think a lot of these, um, I think a lot of these green fuels aren't going to be available at scale mm. to us uh, um, until about mid 2030s. Um, so I suspect um, there's still going to be a lot of um, a lot of ships running on uh, fossil. Um, mm. And I think, to the extent possible, we should look at. Um, you know, um, where we can do biofuels, um, where we can, again, do LNG responsibly. Uh, one of the things we're looking at is LPG, um, um, and that lowers carbon emissions too and doesn't deal with methane slip. So could that be an opportunity? So that's something that we're still kind of trying to understand and wrap our heads around. Um, and then <clears throat> um to the extent that green fuels are available, I mean, if you look at these reports, they basically say in order for us to hit Paris targets, so net zero by 2050, you need to have 5% um, of the fuels being green fuels by 2030. And so uh, we need to crowd in that 5% green fuels uh, to get going on this. So, um, yeah, um, it's challenging. I'm really glad that you are sort of, you know, wedded in reality that uh, you you see that, you know, just because I gave you this eight-year, you know, window to sort of expound a vision that everything's going to work out, but you're being very, very realistic. And I appreciate that very much. These are, you know, generational existential issues, but um, we have so much work to do in, in uh, cracking the code. Um, Lin Lu, thank you so much for your time and insights. Thank you for having me. Again, I mean, I think I'll, I'll end by saying that, you know, um, it's it's really important to be grounded and understand what um, what is happening on the ground and how fast we can move. But that's not to be despondent, right? I think we need to roll up our sleeves and, and get going and we need to double down is what it comes down to. I Thanks again for having me. Absolutely. I appreciate your call to action. I also thank our listeners for listening to this very interesting episode of Copy Time. Podcast was produced by Ken Delbridge from Spy Studios. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional production assistance. Kobe Time is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 88 episodes of the podcast are available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.